This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson, San Jose, California. The Green Odyssey by Philip Jose Farmer. Chapters 10 through 12. He had no trouble at all, except for making his way through the thick traffic. The explosions and shouting coming from the castle had aroused the whole town, so that everybody who could stand on his two feet, or could get somebody to carry him, was outside milling around, asking questions, talking excitedly, and in general trying to make as much chaos as possible and to enjoy every bit of this excuse to take part in a general disturbance. Green strode through them, his head bent but his eyes probing ahead. He made fairly good progress, only being held up temporarily a few times by the human herd. Finally, the flat plain of the windbreak lay before him, and the many mass of the great wheeled vessels were a forest around him. He was able to get to the bird of fortune, unchallenged by any of the dozens of guardsmen that he passed. The roller herself lay snugly between two docks, where a huge gang of slaves had towed her. There was a gangway running up from one of the docks, and at both ends stood a sailor on guard, clad in the family colors of yellow, violet, and crimson. They chewed Grixter nut, something like betel, except that it stained both teeth and lips and gave them a green color. When Green stepped boldly upon the gangway, the nearest guard looked doubtful and put his hand on his knife. Evidently he'd had no orders from Moran about a priest, but he knew what the mask indicated, and that awed him enough so that he did not dare oppose the stranger. Nor was the second guard any quicker in making up his mind. Green slipped by him, entered the mid-decks, and walked up the gangway to the foredeck. He knocked quietly on the door of the captain's cabin. A moment later it swung violently open, light flooded out, then was blocked off by Moran's huge round bulk. Green stepped inside, pressing the captain back. Moran reached for his dagger, but stopped when he saw the intruder take off the mask and spectacles and throw back the hood. Green, so you made it. I did not think it was possible. With me, all things are possible, replied Green modestly. He sat down at the table, or rather crumpled at it, and began repeating in a dry voice, halting with fatigue, the story of his escape. In a few minutes the narrow cabin rang with the captain's laughter, and his one eye twinkled and beamed as he slapped Green on the back and said that by all the gods here was a man he was proud to have aboard. "'Have a drink of this Lespaxian wine, even better than Chalusma, and one I bring out only for honored guests,' said Moran, chortling. Green reached out a hand for the proffered glass, but his fingers never closed upon the stem, for his head sank on the tabletop, and his snores were tremendous. It was three days later that a much-rested green, his skin comfortably, even glowingly, tight with superb Lespaxian, sat at the table and waited for the word to come that he could finally leave the cabin. The first day of inactivity he'd slept and eaten and paced back and forth, anxious for news of what was going on in the city. 
At nightfall, Moran had returned with the story that a furious search was organized in the city itself and the outlying hills. Of course, the Duke would insist that the rollers themselves be turned inside out, and Moran was cursing because that would mean a fatal delay. They could not wait for more than three more days. The fish tanks had been installed, the provisions were almost all in the hold. The roistering crewmen were being dragged out of the taverns and sobered up. Two days after tomorrow, the great vessel would have to be towed out of the windbreak and sail set for the perilous and long voyage. I wouldn't worry, said Green. You will find that tomorrow word will come from the hills. You will find that tomorrow word will come from the hills that Green has been killed by a wild man of the clan Axaquexcan, who will demand money before handing the dead slave's head over. The Duke will accept this as true and will conveniently forget all about searching the rollers. Moran rubbed his fat, oily palms while one pale eye glowed. He loved a good intrigue, the more elaborate the better. But the second day, even though what Green had predicted came true, Moran became nervous and began to find the big blond man's constant presence in his cabin irksome. He wanted to send him down into the hold, but Green firmly refused, reminding the captain of his promise of haven within these very walls. He then calmly appropriated another bottle of the merchant's Lespaxian, having located its hiding place, and drank it. Moran glowered, and his face twitched with repressed resentment, but said nothing because of the custom that a guest could do what he pleased, within reasonable limits. The third day Moran was positively a tub of nerves, jittery, sweating, pacing back and forth. At last he left the cabin, only to begin pacing back and forth on the deck. Green could hear his footsteps for hours. The fourth day he was up at dawn and bellowing orders to his crewmen. A little later Green felt the big vessel move and heard the shouts of the foremen of the towering gangs and chants of the slaves as they bent their backs, hauling at the huge ropes attached to the roller. Slowly, oh so slowly it seemed to Green, the craft creaked forward. He dared open a curtain to look out the square porthole. Before him was the rearing side of another roller, and just for a second it seemed to him that it, not his vessel, was the one that was moving. Then he saw that the roller was advancing at a pace of about fifteen or sixteen feet a minute. It would take them an hour to get past the towering brick walls of the windbreak. He sweated out that hour, and unconsciously fell into his childhood habit of biting his nails, expecting at any time to see the docks suddenly boiled with soldiers running after the bird of fortune, shouting for it to stop because it had a runaway slave aboard. But no such thing occurred and at last the tug gang stopped and began coiling up their ropes, and Green quit chewing his nails. Moran shouted orders. The first mate repeated them. There was the slap of many feet on the decks above, the sound of many voices chanting. A sound as of a knife-cutting cloth told that the sails had been released. Suddenly the vessel rocked as the wind caught it, and a vibration through the floors announced that the big axles were turning. The huge wheels, with their tires of chakarotter, a kind of rubber, were revolving. The bird was on the wing. 
Green opened the door slightly and took one last look at the city of Quatz. It was receding rapidly at the rate of fifteen miles an hour, and at this distance it looked like a toy city nestled in the lap of a hillock. Now that the danger from it was gone, and the odors too far away to offend his nose, it looked quite romantic and enticing. "'And so we say farewell to the exotic Quats,' murmured Green in the approved travelogue fashion. "'So long, you son of an isit!' Then, though he was supposed to stay inside until Moran summoned him, he opened the door and stepped out, and almost fainted dead away. "'Hello, honey,' said Amra. Green scarcely heard the children grouped around her also extend their greetings. He was just coming out of the dizziness and blackness that had threatened to overcome him. Perhaps it was the wine coupled with the shock. Perhaps, he was to think later, it was just that he was plain scared. Scared as he'd not been in the castle. A shame, too, that Amra had found out his plans to desert her, and deeply ashamed because she loved him anyway, and would not allow him to go without her. She had a tremendous pride that must have cost her great effort to choke down. Probably, he was to say to himself later on, it was sheer fear of her tongue that made him quail so. There was nothing that a man dreaded so much as a woman's tongue-lashing, especially if he deserved it. Oh, especially. That was to come later. At the moment, Amra was strangely quiet and meek. All she would say was that she had many business connections and that she knew well Zingaro, the Thieves' Guild business agent. They had been childhood playmates, and they'd helped each other in various shady transactions since. It was only natural that she should hear about the exorator a slave hiding on the bird of fortune had given Zingaro to take back to the duke. Cornering Zingaro, she had worked out of him enough information to be sure that Green had escaped to the roller. After all, Zingaro was under oath only to be reticent about certain details of the whole matter. From there she had taken the business into her own hands, had told Moran that she would inform the Duchess of Green's whereabouts unless he permitted her and her family to go along on the voyage. "'Here I am, your faithful and loyal wife,' she said, opening her arms in an expansive gesture. "'I am overwhelmed with emotion,' replied Green, for once not exaggerating. "'Then come and embrace me,' she cried, "'and don't stand there as if you'd seen the dead return from the grave.' "'Before all these people?' he said, half-stunned, looking around at the grinning captain and first mate on the foredeck beside him, and at the sailors and their families on the mid-deck below." The only ones not watching him were the goggled helmsmen, whose backs were turned because they were intent on wrestling with the great spoked wheel. "'Why not?' she retorted. "'You will be sleeping in the open deck with them, eating with them, breathing their breath, feeling their elbows at every turn, cursing, laughing, fighting, getting drunk, making love, all, all on the open deck. So why not embrace me? Or don't you want me to be here?' The thought never entered my head, he said, stepping up to her and taking her in his arms. Or if it had, he rejected, you can bet that I'd not dare say it. After all, it was good to feel her soft, warm, firmly curved body again, and know that there was at least one person on this godforsaken planet that cared for him. 
what could have made him think for one minute that he could endure life without her? Well, he had. She just would not, could not, fit into his life if he ever got back on earth. Moran coughed and said, You two and your children and maid must get off the deck and go amidships. That is where you will live. Never again must you set foot upon the steering deck unless you are summoned. I run a tight ship, and discipline is strictly adhered to. Green followed Amra and the children down the steps to the deck below, noticing for the first time that Inzax, the pretty blonde slave who took care of the children, was also aboard. You had to give credit to Amra. Wherever she went, she traveled in style. He also thought that if this was a tight ship, a loose one must be sheer chaos. Cats and dogs were running here and there, playing with the many infants, or else fighting with each other. Women sat and sewed, or hung up washing, or dried dishes, or nursed babies. Hens clucked defiantly from behind the bars of their coops, scattered everywhere. On the port side there was even a pig pen holding about thirty of the tiny rabbit-eared porcines. Green followed Amra to a place where an awning had been stretched to make a roof. "'Isn't this nice?' she said. "'It has sides which we can pull down when it rains, or when we want privacy, as I suppose we will, you being so funny in some ways.' "'Oh, it's delightful,' he hastened to assure her. "'I see you even have some feather mattresses and a cook-stove.' He looked around. "'But where are the fish-tanks?' I thought Moran was going to bolt them to the deck. Oh, no. He said that they were too valuable to expose to gunfire if we encountered pirates. So he had the deck cut open wide enough to lower the tanks inside the hold. Then the deck planking was replaced. Most of these people here would be sleeping below if it weren't for the tanks. But there's no room now. Green decided to take a look around. He liked to have a thorough knowledge of his immediate environment, so that he would know how to behave if an emergency arose. The wind-roller itself was about two hundred feet long. Its beam was about thirty-four feet. The hull was boat-shaped, and the narrow keel rested on fourteen axles. Twenty-eight enormous solid rubber-tired wheels turned at the ends of these axles. Thick ropes of the tough rubber-like substance were tied to the ends of the axles and to the tops of the hull itself. These were to hold the body steady and keep it from going over when the roller reeled under too strong a side wind, and also to provide some resiliency when the roller was making a turn. Being aboard at such times was almost like being on a water-sailing ship. As the front pair of wheels, the steering wheels, turned and the longitudinal axis of the craft slowly changed direction, the body of the vessel, thrust by the shifting impact of the winds, also tilted. Not too far, never as far as a boat in a similar case, but enough to give one an uneasy feeling. The cables on the opposing side would stretch to a degree, and then would stop the sideways motion of the keel, and there would be a slight and slow roll to the other direction. Then a shorter and slower motion back again. It was enough to make a novice green. Roller sickness wasn't uncommon at the beginning of a voyage, or during a violent windstorm. Like its aqueous counterpart, it affected the sufferer so that he could only hang over the rail and wish he would die. The bird of fortune sported a curving bow and a high foredeck. 
On this was fastened the many-spoked steering wheel. Two helmsmen always attended it, two men wearing hexagonal goggles and close-fitting leather helmets with high crests of curled wire. Behind them stood the captain and first mate, giving their attention alternately to the helmsman and to the sailors on deck and aloft. The mid-deck was sunken, and the poop-deck, though raised, was not as high as the fore-deck. The four masts were tall, but not as tall as those of a marine craft of similar size. High masts would have given the roller a tendency to capsize in a very strong wind, despite the weight of the axles and wheels. Therefore the yard-arms, reaching far out beyond the sides of the hull, were comparatively longer than a sea-ship's. When the bird carried a full weight of canvas she looked, to a mariner's eyes, squat and ungainly. Moreover, yards had been fixed at right angles to the top of the hull and to the keel itself. Extra canvas was hung between these spars. The sight of all that sail sticking from between the wheels was enough to drive an old sailor to drink. Three masts were square-rigged. The aft mast was fore-and-aft rigged, and was used to help the steering. There was no bowsprit. Altogether, it was a strange-looking craft. But once one was accustomed to it, one saw it was as beautiful as a ship of the sea. It was as formidable, too, for the bird carried five large cannon on the mid-deck, six cannon on the second deck, a lighter swivel cannon on the steering deck, and two swivels on the poop deck. Hung from davits were two long life-rollers, and a gig, all wheeled and with folding masts. If the bird was wrecked, it could be abandoned, and all the crew could scoot off in the little rollers. Green wasn't given much time for inspection. He became aware that a tall, lean sailor was regarding him intently. This fellow was dark-skinned, but had the pale blue eyes of the Tropat Hillsman. He moved like a cat and wore a long, thin dagger, sharp as a claw. A nasty customer, thought Green. Presently, the nasty customer, seeing that Green was not going to notice him, walked in front of him so that he could not help being annoyed. At the same time, the babble around them died, and everybody turned his head to stare. "'Friend,' said Green, affably enough, "'would you mind standing off to one side?' You are blocking my view. The fellow spit Grickster juice at Green's feet. No slave calls me friend. Yes, I am blocking your view, and I would mind getting out of the way. Evidently you object to my presence here, said Green. What is the matter? You don't like my face? No, I don't. And I don't like to have as a crewmate a stinking slave. "'Speaking of odors,' said Green, "'would you please stand to the leeward of me? "'I've been through a lot lately, and I've a delicate stomach.' "'Silence, you son of an is it!' roared the sailor, red-faced. "'Have respect towards your betters, "'or I'll strike you down and throw your body overboard.' "'It takes two to make a murder, "'just as it takes two to make a bargain,' said Green in a loud voice, "'hoping that Moran would hear and be reminded of his promise of protection.' But Moran shrugged his shoulders. He had done as much as he could. It was up to Green to make his way from now on. 
"'It's true that I am a slave,' he said. "'But I was not born one. "'Before being captured, I was a freeman "'who knew liberty as none of you here know it. "'I came from a country where there were no masters "'because every man was his own master. "'However, that is neither here nor there. "'The point is that I earned my freedom, "'that I fought like a warrior, "'not a slave to get aboard the bird. "'I wish to become a crew member.' to become a blood-brother to the clan Ephanikin. Ah, indeed. And what can you contribute to the clan that we should consider you worthy of sharing our blood? What indeed, Green thought. The sweat broke out all over his body, though the morning wind was cool. At that moment he saw Miran speak to a sailor, who disappeared below decks and come out almost at once, carrying a small harp in his hand. Oh, yes, now he remembered that he had told the captain what a wonderful harpist and singer he was, just the man that the clan, eager for entertainment on the long voyages, would be likely to initiate. The unfortunate thing about that was that Green couldn't play a note. Nevertheless, he took the instrument from the sailor and gravely plucked its strings. He listened to the tones, frowned, adjusted the pegs, plucked them again, then handed the harp back. "'Sorry, this is an inferior instrument,' he said haughtily. "'Haven't you anything better? I couldn't think of degrading my art on such a cheap monstrosity.' "'Gods above!' screamed a man standing nearby. "'That is my harp you are talking about! The beloved harp of me, the bard Grezout! Slave! Tone-deaf son of a laryngeal mother!' You will answer to me for that insult. No, said the sailor. This is my affair. I, Ezker, will test this lubber's fitness to join the clan and be called my brother. Over my dead body, brother. If you so wish it, brother. There were more angry words until presently Moran himself came down to the mid-deck. By Minerox, this is a disgrace, he bellowed. Two Ephanikin quarreling before a slave. Come, make a decision quietly, or I will have you both thrown overboard. It is not too far to walk back to Quats. We will cast dice to see who is the lucky man, said the sailor Esker. Grinning gap-toothedly, he reached into the pouch that hung from his belt and pulled out the hexagonal ivories. A few minutes later, he rose from his knees, having won four out of six throws. Green was disappointed more than he cared to show, for he had hoped that if he had to fight anybody, it would be the pudgy, soft-looking harpist, not the tough sailor. Esger seemed to agree with Green that he could not have had worse luck. Chewing Grixter so rapidly that the green-flecked slaver ran down his long chin, Esger announced the terms that the blonde slave would have to meet to prove his fitness. For a moment... Green thought of leaving the ship and making his way on foot. Moran protested loudly. "'This is ridiculous. Why can you not fight on deck like two ordinary men and be satisfied if one gives the other a flesh wound? That way I won't stand the chance of losing you, Esger, one of my top topmen. If you should slip, who would take your place? This green hand here?' Esker ignored his captain's indignation, knowing that the code of the clan protected him. He spit and said, "'Anybody can weld a dagger. 
I want to see what kind of a man this green is aloft. Walking a yard is the best way to see the color of his blood. Yes, thought Green, his skin goose-pimpling. You'll likely see my blood all right, splashed from here to the horizon when I fall. He asked Moran if he could withdraw a moment to his tent to pray to his gods for success. Moran nodded, and Green had Amra let down the sides of his shelter while he dropped to his knees. As soon as his privacy was assured, he handed her a long turban cloth and told her to go outside. She looked surprised, but when he told her what else she was to do, she smiled and kissed him. "'You are a clever man, Alan. I was right to prefer you above any other man I might have had, and I could have had the best.' "'Save the compliments for afterwards, when we'll know if it works,' he said. "'Hurry to the stove and do what I say. If anybody asks you what you are up to, tell them that the stuff is necessary for my religious ritual.' The gods, he said as she ducked through the tent opening, often come in handy. If they didn't exist, it would be necessary to invent them. Amra paused and turned with an adoring face. Ah, Alan, that is one of the many things for which I love you. You are always originating these witty sayings. How clever and how dangerously blasphemous. He shrugged, airily dismissing her compliment as if it were nothing. In a minute she returned with a turban wrapped around something limp but heavy. And within two minutes he stepped out of the tent, clad in a loincloth, leather belt, dagger, and turban. Silently he began climbing the rope ladder that rose to the tip of the nearest mast. Behind him came Ezker. He did get some encouragement from Amra and the children. The duke's two boys cried out to him to cut the so-and-so's throat, but if he was killed instead, they would avenge him when they grew up, if not sooner. Even the blonde maid, Inzax, wept. He felt somewhat better, for it was good to know that some people cared for him, and the knowledge that he had to survive and make sure that these women and children didn't come to grief was an added stimulus. Nevertheless, he felt his momentarily gained courage oozing out of his sweat pores with every step upward. It was so high up here, so far down below. The craft itself became smaller and smaller, and the people shrank to dolls, to upturned white faces that soon became less faces than blanks. The wind howled through the rigging and the mast, which seemed so solid and steady when he was at its base, now became fragile and swaying. "'It takes guts to be a sailor and blood-brother of the clan Ephanikin,' said Esker. Do you have them green? Yes, but if I get any sicker, I'll lose them, and you'll be sorry being below me, muttered Green to himself. Finally, after what seemed like endless clamoring into the very clouds themselves, he arrived at the topmost yard. If he had thought the mast thin and flexible, the arm seemed like a toothpick poised above an abyss. And he was supposed to inch his way out to the whipping tip, then turn and come back fighting. "'If you were not a coward, you would stand up and walk out,' called Esker. "'Sticks and stones will break my bones,' replied Green, but did not enlighten the puzzled sailor as to what he meant. Sitting down on the yard, he put his legs around it and began working his way out. 
Halfway to the arm he stopped and dared to look down. Once was enough. There was nothing but hard, grassy ground directly beneath him, seemingly a mile below, and the flat plain rushing by, and the huge wheels turning, turning. "'Go on!' shouted Esker. Green turned his head and told him in indelicate language what he could do with the yard and the whole ship for that matter if he could manage it. Esker's dark face reddened and he stood up and began walking out on the yard. Green's eyes widened. This man could actually do it. But when he was a few feet away, the sailor stopped and said, No, you are trying to anger me so I will grapple with you here and perhaps be pushed off since you have a firmer hold. No, I will not be such a fool. It is you who must try and get past me. He turned and walked almost carelessly back to the mast, against which he leaned while he waited. You have to go out to the very end, he repeated, else you won't pass the test, even if you should get by me, which, of course, you won't. Green gritted his teeth and humped out to what he considered close enough to the end, about two feet away. Any more might break the arm, as it was already bending far down, or so it seemed to him. He then backed away, managed to turn, and to work back to within several feet of Esger. Here he paused to regain his breath, his strength, and his courage. The sailor waited, one hand on a rope to steady himself, the other with its dagger held point out at green. The earthman began unwinding his turban. "'What are you doing?' said Esker, frowning with sudden anxiety. Up to this point he had been master, because he knew what to expect. But if something unconventional happened... Green shrugged his shoulders and continued his very careful and slow unwrapping of his headpiece. "'I don't want to spill this,' he said. "'Spill what?' "'This!' shouted Green, and he whipped the turban upward towards Esker's face. The turban itself was too far from the sailor to touch him, but the sand contained within it flew into his eyes before the wind could dissipate it. Amra, following her husband's directions, had collected a large amount from the fireplace's sand pile to wrap in it, and though it had made his head feel heavy, it had been worth it. Esker screamed and clutched at his eyes, releasing his dagger. At the same time, Green slid forward and rammed his fist into the man's groin. Then, as Esker crumpled toward him, he caught him and eased him down. He followed his first blow with a chopping of the edge of his palm against the fellow's neck. Esker quit screaming and passed out. Green rolled him over so that he could lay on his stomach across the yard, supported on one side by the mast, with his legs, arms, and head dangling. That was all he wanted to do for him. He had no intention of carrying him down. His only wish was to get to the deck, where he'd be safe. If Esker fell off now, too bad. Amra and Inzax were waiting at the foot of the shrouds when Green slowly climbed off. When he set foot on the deck, he thought his legs would give way, they were trembling so. Amra, noticing this, quickly put her arms around him as if to embrace the conquering hero, but actually to help support him. Thanks, he muttered. 
I need your strength, Amra. Anybody would who had done what you've done, she said. But my strength and all of me is at your disposal, Alan. The children were looking at him with wide, admiring eyes and yelling, That's our daddy, big blonde green. He's as quick as a grass cat. He bites like a dire dog and he'll spit poison in your eye like a flying snake. Then, in the next moment, he was submerged under the men and women of the clan, all anxious to congratulate him for his feat and to call him brother. The only ones who did not crowd around, trying to kiss him on the lips, were the officers of the bird and the wife and children of the unfortunate sailor, Esger. These were climbing up the rigging to fasten a rope around his waist and lower him. There was one other who remained aloof. That was the harpist, Grizut. He was still sulking at the foot of the mast. Green decided that he'd better keep an eye on him, especially at night when a knife could be slipped between a sleeper's ribs and the body thrown overboard. He wished now that he'd not gone out of his way to insult the fellow's instrument, but at the time that had seemed the only thing to do. Now he had better try to find some way to pacify him. End of chapters 10 through 12